Well, we're finally there again at the eve of Christmas for another year. The time, of course, where Christians celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus over 2,000 years ago. And Christians celebrate that birth because we believe that that baby is no ordinary baby, but the Son of God come in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah or Christ of Israel, the divine Savior King who would deal with sin and put all things right in his world. The birth of Jesus is the most wonderful news in the world. But I wonder if you've ever wondered, is it really true? We're so familiar, perhaps, if we're church-going people with the story of Jesus' birth, that we fail to see just how staggering it really is. After all, this baby that we worship and claim is the king was born to no fanfare, no media coverage, but born to a virgin in a stable, in an obscure town in the Middle East, the illegitimate son of a carpenter from a town called Nazareth, and what good thing comes from there? And today we're going to see that this little baby is forced to become a refugee, forced to seek asylum and to flee for his life from his home. It's hardly the start we might expect for one who is called the saviour of the whole world. And in fact, nearly 2,000 years later, so many of the things that God promised that he would do through his Messiah have still not come to pass. Can we really believe that this baby is the one on whom the hopes of the whole world rest? And the whole point of Matthew's opening chapters of his gospel is to say, yes, we can trust in him. And that however unexpected and surprising these events around Jesus' birth may seem to be, that actually through them, God is carefully, deliberately bringing his promises for his world to pass, just as he is still doing today. And the question is going to be, not can I trust Jesus, but actually will I receive him as my king? In these two events from this passage that we've just had read from Matthew, uh, we're going to see two things um, just briefly. And the first of those is that the promised rescue from sin has begun, and this is verses 13 to 15. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you, you may be a visitor, you may not have been, but we've been working through these opening chapters of Matthew's gospel. And last week we saw that uh, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, was visited by these wise men from the east, or Magi. And at the end of that passage in verse 12, we see that the Magi are warned not to return to King Herod, as he'd asked them to, be, to do, but to leave by a different route. And we pick up the story in verse 13, and you see that events have taken a drastic turn. Let me read. When they had gone, that's the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. You can only imagine the panic that that young father felt that night, the fear that he must have felt, the confusion. Hadn't they already been through enough? And now with no time to waste, he must pack up his belongings get back on his donkey, and flee with his wife and a young baby for their lives. 
And as we see throughout this story in Matthew 2, Joseph, without hesitation, obeys. So verse 14, he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. Egypt, of course, was a a close neighbor of Israel, an obvious destination for a family seeking asylum from Israel. But in the days before public transport and Uber drivers, this would have been an incredibly long, arduous, and dangerous journey for a family like this to take, at least a week's travel. And biblically speaking, of course, Egypt is, is not a pleasant place, however nice it might be to visit as a tourist. Because Egypt carried all sorts of negative connotations. It was a place uh, in the Bible of slavery, a place of sin and death, a place associated with God's judgment on sin. And the idea that God's Messiah, his chosen king, might have to not only flee his own land, but take refuge in Egypt would be almost unthinkable. But you see in verse 15... This rather unexpected, even shocking event is all part of God's providential plan. So verse 15, we read, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. On the surface, Matthew's point is is just simply this, that the Old Testament said that at some point when the Messiah came, he would need to flee to Egypt because God would one day call him out of Egypt. This event is no mistake. That's what it's saying on the surface. But actually, I think Matthew wants us to see a little bit more than that, because the eagle-eyed of you might know that this specific verse that is quoted from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, does not actually predict the future coming of God's king. It actually looks back on how God had first called the nation of Israel all those years before out of Egypt as his corporate son at the time of the Exodus. That's some 1,500 years before Jesus came. So what on earth is Matthew doing with this text in applying it to Jesus' flight to Egypt? And I think the answer is this, and I think it's really important. Matthew is actually reading that verse, which is verse 1 from chapter 11, in the context of the whole of Hosea, and specifically that chapter. And if you have time over Christmas, why not go away and read that chapter for yourself? But if we did do that today and we went back, we would see that that chapter reflects on God's kindness in rescuing the nation of Israel from Egypt all those years ago. But it also reflects on how unfaithful that nation was. Repeatedly, for centuries, they rebelled, and they sinned, and they turned away from God and spurned His grace and refused to trust Him. And in verse 5 of Hosea chapter 11, God says that He is going to send them away from Himself. He's going to cast them into exile. He's going to send them back to bondage and to suffering. And Hosea describes that as a return to Egypt. It would be like going back. And then the chapter concludes with the most wonderful note of hope. 
Because it says that God in his tender mercy will not leave his people, but actually he will regather them to himself. All those who are repentant will be restored. They will come back out of Egypt. There would be a new great rescue, a new exodus. Only this time it would be far greater because it would not only be a rescue from physical slavery, it would actually be a rescue from spiritual slavery, a rescue from sin, a rescue from guilt, a rescue from death, all of the things that had caused God to cast them out. Ultimately, it would lead to a whole new creation. And the key is in Hosea is that this great rescue would be led by God's Messiah, God's own king, his own son. Well, we know uh, that the exile did actually take place. Israel was taken off out of the land, just as Hosea said it would. We're going to see in a moment that at the time of Jesus' birth, this great exile from God is still going on. They're still waiting this great rescue from sin. They're still waiting for God's king to come. And then as Jesus flees to Egypt, Matthew says the most incredible thing. He quotes Hosea and he says, Out of Egypt I brought or I called my son. Can you see the point? Matthew is saying, the time has come. The time for this great rescue from sin and judgment has begun. The exodus, this great second exodus is starting. The exile from God is coming to an end. Do you know, yesterday, uh, family and I went to the cinema. We went to see the Wonka film. It's a, it's a wonderful film. But you know, when you go to the cinema, at the start, there are trailers. And films that are about to come out, and they show you what the films are going to be like so that you will want to come back and you will want to see them. And I think what's going on here then in the flight to Egypt is that Matthew sees a sort of trailer of the great work that Jesus is going to perform, a trailer of the work that will, in the end, take him to the cross where he will die for our sin, where he will be exiled from God in our place. And he sees Jesus going to Egypt to identify with his sinful people, with those people who are enslaved, signaling that this great rescue that Hosea looked forward to is about to begin. And you see, we know that's probably what Matthew is thinking because of all the Exodus imagery that we have in this text. We have the mention of Egypt. We have the mention of Herod, this Pharaoh-like figure who oppresses the people of God. We have the murder of Israelite children, just like Pharaoh did. And we have the miraculous preservation of Jesus, the baby, protected just like Moses was at that first exodus. And maybe you're wondering, what does all of this have to do with me this Christmas time? It means simply this that God, in his son Jesus, has made a way back to himself for you and for me. The Bible says, actually, that we are all exiled from God. We're all guilty of, our, of sin. We're all cut off from relationship with him. 
Just like Israel, we're cast out of the land. We're metaphorically in Egypt. Just like Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, out of God's presence. And it's going to take a great rescue, a great exodus, second exodus, to bring us back to God, to bring us back to fellowship with him. And this is the most wonderful news. But remember a, a few months ago reading a story about a family in another part of the world who had been forced out of their homelands because of war and conflict. And the father was reflecting on the sadness that they felt as a family, that they were no longer in the place that they wanted to be, and how much they longed to go back to their home, to go back to the place where they were secure and where they were happy and where they were free. And yet there was no way they could. The remarkable news of Christmas is that actually God has made a way for us to come back to him. Maybe you are not a Christian this morning, wondering if there's any way God could forgive me and have me and his family. Maybe you're a Christian who is caught up in a pattern of sin or has committed one specific thing that you just wonder, could God forgive me that? The message of Christmas is that in his son, the baby Jesus, he has made it possible for you to be his son and his daughter. The question is not, is there a way back to God? But will you find refuge in him? And so we see in the flight to Egypt that the promised rescue from sin has begun. And that sets the stage for the second thing Matthew wants us to see, which is that the longed-for restoration will certainly come. This is verses 16 through 18. Uh, we finally see that Jesus comes back from Egypt in verse 21, but before that, Matthew includes this really, truly awful event perpetrated by Herod, Rome's, Rome's client king who ruled over Israel at the time. Just look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Uh, some Christians have actually exaggerated the extent of the massacre here. Uh, given the population of Bethlehem, it's probably around about 20 children who die. But nevertheless, the cruelty, the the insecurity of Herod is almost so awful as to be unfathomable. And yet, it's only in keeping with what we know of the man who murdered three of his own children, his favorite wife, as well as scores of his enemies when they threatened his rule. And you see in Herod, we see the sort of unrestrained expression of human sin, the human desire for freedom from God that will go to any lengths to keep his son Jesus out of their lives. It's an event that actually we see repeated again at the crucifixion. They're committed by all humanity. Matthew, I think, however, his focus here is not so much on Herod's hatred, as awful as that it is, but that Jesus' flight, just like as with Jesus' flight to Egypt, that this terrible event nevertheless still falls within the providential purposes of God for his world. Did you see verse 18 or 17? 
Then what was filled through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And once again, just like that text from Hosea that we were talking about a moment ago, this is another slightly initially puzzling Old Testament reference, this time from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. That chapter actually overlaps in a number of ways with Hosea chapter 11, because it's, it's a chapter that also reflects on the exile of God's people from the land of Israel on account of their sin. And you see, Rachel here, who was, of course, the wife of Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, is being used as a kind of representative of the whole nation. And you see in verse 18 that she's weeping for her children. And she's weeping at Ramah, which is very close to Bethlehem. And she's weeping because the children... Her sons, the sons of Israel, are being taken off into exile out of the land. Ramah was the place where the exiles gathered before they were deported. And Rachel refuses to be comforted because she fears that her children are no more. She fears that they will never return. And I think just like the previous text from Hosea. Matthew's point is not that Herod's murderous act somehow was directly predicted in Jeremiah, but actually that in this horrific act, we see that the exile from God is still very much a reality in Israel. In fact, Herod's massacre of the children in Bethlehem that first Christmas, in a way, is bringing to a climax, to a fulfillment all of that sorrow that was first expressed in Jeremiah. The tears of the Israelite mothers have flowed for hundreds of years without ceasing and without comfort. And they continue to flow this night that Herod acts. And they're still flowing, though Jesus is born. And part of the point that Matthew wants to make is that though Israel is actually physically now back in the land of Israel, the exile is not over. The great rescue from sin has not yet happened. The great restoration of all things that God promised through his Messiah has not taken place. And Israel, like the rest of the world, is a place full of violence and sin and death, crying out for someone to put things right. This great second exodus that Hosea longed for, that Jeremiah is pointing for, has still not come at this time. Which is why it's such wonderful news what we saw before, that in Jesus, the great rescue has actually begun. But in fact, I think actually Matthew is trying to teach us just a little bit more from quoting from Jeremiah verse uh, chapter 31 verse 15 because if you went back to Jeremiah 31 you would see that verse 15 is the only negative verse in the whole of that chapter in fact virtually the only negative verse in four chapters surrounding it the rest of Jeremiah 33 33 is really chapters of great hope and promise 
And in just the verses following the verse that Matthew quotes, verses 16 to 17 of Jeremiah 31, we read God saying this, "'Restrain your voice, Rachel, from weeping, and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded.'" Your sons will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your descendants. Your children will return to their land. And it seems that even during this dark, terrible hour in the history of the world, in the history of Israel, that first Christmas, Matthew was expressing just a hint of hope. Just as Jeremiah promises a restoration after the nation has been cut down to its children at exile, Matthew is saying, so this massacre of Herod will not prevent Christ, the Son of God, achieving his great rescue mission. And when God puts an end to the exile through his Son, he will not only rescue people from their sin to restore their relationship with him, he will also put all things right and lead a great restoration. He will eradicate sin and death from his world. And again, isn't that the most wonderful news for us to remember this Christmas time? Because the world that is described here at the time of Herod is not that different from the world that we live in today. You can't escape it if you put the news on to have seen what has happened over the course of the last six to 12 months. A world destroyed by war and conflict and sadness. And much closer to home, we will know that our own lives are often disordered. That sadness hits home in our relationships and our families. I was speaking to someone I'd met. I'd not seen him for a couple of years, but I bumped into him. uh, And we got chatting, and he told me how, since I'd last seen him, that his young son had tragically died. I was on the phone yesterday with another friend who is three young children wondering if this Christmas will be the last that he spends with his wife because she's ill. We could go around this room and there'd be any number of other places where situations where people are suffering and full of sorrow, touched by evil. What Matthew wants us to know, what God wants us to know, is that our God, our God who sends his own son into the world to suffer and die for us, is a God who not only restores us from our sin to fellowship with him, but will also one day turn all mourning to laughing, all agony to glory, all tears to joy. And it was true for those Bethlehem um, mothers that night, and it's true for you and me, however heavy our hearts are this Christmas. Nothing can stop God working out his plans. Nothing can stop him saving us from our sins. Nothing can stop him restoring his whole world and putting our lives right again. Not even maniacal kings and rulers. So as we close uh, this Christmas Eve. I hope that we can see that these two initially unexpected events, perhaps, in the life of Jesus from Matthew 2, we can see that God is actually working out his plans for us and his world through his Son. In the flight to Egypt, we see that the great rescue from sin has begun. 
And we see in the tragedy of Herod's actions that the longed-for restoration will surely come. And our God wants us to know that he always keeps his promises and he always keeps his word. And in fact, the question is not really, can I trust his son Jesus this Christmas? But will I, like Joseph, take God at his word? Will I, like the Magi, take off my crown of my life and worship at the feet of Jesus, the saving king whom God has sent for our salvation? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ is your saving King, the Messiah, the Christ, who has come to put all things right. Father, we pray that we might know deep in our hearts that there is a way back to you, that our sins have been dealt with, ultimately at the cross, and that we can have friendship with you. And we pray, too, that you would lift our eyes to the final restoration of all things when Jesus returns, and that for those of us who are mourning or suffering, or full of sorrow, that you might comfort us and help us to press on until that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.